Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Navy isn't quite certain how many ships and submarines it wants to build over the next few decades. In fact, it's offered three alternative plans to Congress with varying timelines and price tags. For analysis, we turn to the senior analyst for Naval Forces at the Congressional Budget Office, Eric Labs. Mr. Labs, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And you have studied this extensively. And I guess my first question is, and we're going to get to the shipbuilding capacity of the United States, but Navy warships by statute, if I'm correct, must be built in the United States. Is that correct? That's correct. Congress requires that Navy warships be built in U.S. shipyards. And they even take it a little bit further than that. They do have on the books rules, laws to make sure that the content, the shipyards used to build those ships, is mostly American-made as well and looking to increase that uh, in the future, that content. Yes, because I guess in the Coast Guard, there are a couple of vessels, classes that are made, I think, by a Finnish contractor and so forth. But those are not warships. They're some other type of vessel. Let's get to the plans. And you present three alternative plans because that's what Navy presented to Congress and for CBO to evaluate. What is their strategy in presenting three alternative plans with different mixes of vessels in each of those plans? Honestly, that is not very clear. It is not very clear to me. It's not very clear to the Congress. This phenomenon that you describe of multiple plans in their shipbuilding report started last year with 2023. They had three plans last year. First plan by a little less than 300 ships, emphasized surface combatants a little bit more than submarines, moved to new generation ships fast. The second plan, which was actually put together by the Office of Secretary of Defense's CAPE, its analytic unit, it was going to emphasize submarines a little bit more than surface combatants, and it would emphasize building more of existing classes of ships and fewer of next generation ships. And those two alternatives were going to be under a fiscal constraint, basically the same amount of money that the Navy is getting for shipbuilding that it's getting today. Then the third plan is, well, if you give the Navy some more money, what does it do for it? Well, in that third alternative, it would buy a little bit more of everything, although not quite as many submarines as alternative two. And the idea behind this, I guess, is to sort of give ideas of sort of what would be the trade-offs that you can buy with you know fixed amounts of money, or if you had more money, what can you buy? The problem is, is I don't think the Congress really knows what to do with these three alternative plans. The statute implies that they should be submitting one plan, not three. Interesting. And because you would think that the plan of the mix of the ships should start not from here's different dollar volumes, but here's what the strategy is of the Navy for defending the nation. And that should derive from the Quadrennial Defense Review and the other documents that are out there. Shouldn't that be the driver and not some kind of a Chinese menu, if you will, of here's what we could do? Well, I think there's two ways I want to answer that question. One is, to some degree, at a very broad level, it does do that. The Navy is not going to put a shipbuilding plan out there that is, you know, radically at variance with what the national defense strategy is of the United States. That being said, the Navy admits directly in this shipbuilding plan, in its cover letter and in the document itself, that, okay, the plan in 2024 is a holdover of 2023. It has not been aligned to the national defense strategy that was put out in 2022. We're going to do that. We're going to align the Navy shipbuilding plan in the fiscal year 2025 budget and shipbuilding plan with that national defense strategy. So does that mean in 2025 in February when this budget and shipbuilding plan comes over, we'll have one plan and not three? I hope so, because it's a lot of work for me to do three plans rather than one. But I don't know. So it's not clear. 
And just on the budget itself, what is the variation in the costs of the various plans? And in general, what percentage of the Navy budget and of the defense budget do they represent? My quick summary look at your report sounds like it's about 5% of the total defense budget. Right. In terms of shipbuilding, it's only going to be you know a relatively small amount, about 5%, as you say. In terms of the total cost of the plans, by CBO's estimate, it would cost about anywhere from 33 to $36 billion on average every year for the next 30 years to implement any one of these plans. And the, the range, of course, is depending on which plan you're talking about. And that's a large amount of money. We have not spent that much money on Navy shipbuilding for that long period of time in our nation's history. So these are challenging plans that the Navy you know, is putting forward for people to consider. We're speaking with Eric Labs. He's Senior Analyst for Naval Forces and Weapons at the Congressional Budget Office. And besides the number of vessels, there's also what those vessels can do. And that's got to figure somehow into the equation, because if one ship costs X, but it can launch 30 percent more missiles and the other ship costs X minus 10 percent, but it doesn't have that capability, that has to complicate the trade-off questions. Absolutely. And a lot of people do fixate on sort of the total number of ships in the fleet or the total number of ships that we're buying. But you're absolutely right that the composition of that fleet, the composition of those ships that we're buying and what those individual ships can do, the capabilities that they bring to the fleet matter a great deal more than, say, like an overall you know, numerical count. One of the things that the Navy did do in its shipbuilding plan last year when it first introduced these three plans is it introduced some measures of capability that we could look at and compare the plans in an unclassified format. The Navy does a lot of its analysis in classified like campaign models and things like that. We can't really understand that. But, you know, the number of missile cells, the number of sorties the fleet can launch, these are measures that they put into their shipbuilding plan to try and facilitate comparison. The problem with that is that they didn't give much guidance or headlights or signals to the Congress to say, well, what does this mean? What can Alternative 2 do better than Alternative 1 can do? And so forth. They showed these measures of comparison without giving any guidance as to sort of what they mean and how to use them. And continuous published reports talk about how China is churning out a Navy and almost like faster than Carnival Cruise Lines. They've got maybe not quite as capable or quite as good. But then, you know, there's the doctrine thought that there is strength in just sheer numbers, even if they're less capable, they can swarm and so on surround Taiwan or whatever the case might be, which gets me to the question of the defense industrial base. For whatever the Navy would like to do, is there the industrial capacity? And if Congress decided, well, maybe we ought to accelerate this and do it in 20 years or 10 years, given the threat situation, could the nation actually fulfill those orders? To accelerate this shipbuilding plan, in other words, to say like, you know, Alternative 1 builds 290 ships, to try and build those 290 ships in 15 or 20 years, as opposed to over 30 years, that's not really possible with the industrial capacity that we have today. Right now, the submarine industrial base, which is the one weapon system in the fleet that everyone agrees that we need more of them, more of them as fast as we can get them, submarine industrial base is already currently at its limit because of all the things that they've had to do in terms of buildup of new replacement ballistic missile submarines, building up two attack submarines per year. They can't really do much more. Now, the Navy's going to invest heavily into that submarine industrial base, billions and billions of dollars that will go into to increase that capacity. But that's going to take five to 10 years before we bear fruit to be able to build more than what we're already building today. And that's going to be true for uh, across a lot of other types of combatants as well. There's some slack in some categories, but a lot of it is you know, we don't have the industrial capacity to compete with China's rate of shipbuilding right now. Right. There's only one builder of these submarines, and there's no six companies that can compete for each tranche of subs. 
the way we build submarines is that there are actually two submarine builders, but they each only build about half of an attack submarine. And then they ship those sections to each other for alternating final assemblies of those submarines. To build a nuclear-powered submarine would require a huge investment, you know, like 15 to $20 billion to build a new shipyard that could actually produce those submarines and take probably 15 to 20 years to get that really up and running. So yes, with respect to submarines especially, we are stuck with the shipbuilders that we have. Now, there are things that the Navy is doing to help that. There are sections of submarines that are starting to farm out to other shipyards and other companies. They build a deck here, they build a compartment there, and they start incorporating that into sort of a one nation as one shipyard, if you will. So the Navy's going down that direction very strongly because they recognize they have to. They can't meet the demand signal without doing that because they don't have other yards that can build submarines. Eric Labs is Senior Analyst for Naval Forces and Weapons at the Congressional Budget Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.